Hello, folks. Welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price, and I'm your host. It's been a little quiet over here. I've been preparing for the release of The Sacred Series, which is taking a hell of a lot longer than anticipated. So I think, and to to put a number on it, I think it's going to come out in mid-January, hopefully by February. So there's the latest update, still working on it, and it is an exciting period of time to be digging into this material. And um, so if you know what I'm talking about, great. If you don't, you'll be you'll be seeing some releases of a new series that's that on this channel that are coming out in January or February. Thanks for tuning in. Well, thanks for being here. And today I've got a cool episode with Dr. Tony Bossis and Mark Airy. I'll explain who they are in a bit. But first, I want to get to some updates of what's going on with the Sacred Speaks. For uh, exciting news, I've got to look at all my notes. Exciting news that I'll be teaching a class at Esalen in February, late February, what's actually February 28th through March 4th. So it will be up on their website very soon. Check that out when you can. In in preparation for that episode, I'm going to interview Jeff Kripal mid-January to uh, explore his book on Esalen, uh, The Birth of the Counterculture Movement. It's an exciting book, and certainly I love every time I get to talk to Jeff, uh, but I'm, I'm really eager to do this uh, this workshop. It's Overshadow and the Psychology of Fame. It's a conversation and a lecture that's really close to my heart. I did my dissertation on this subject. So if you're available and out in California in uh, February, March, come on out. Uh, look at Eslin, E-S-A-L-E-N.com. Links below. Links to all this stuff uh, will be below in the uh, liner notes or the show notes. Uh, okay, us also upcoming episodes for The Sacred Speaks. I interviewed a fellow named Miles Neal. He's a, psycholo- or a, uh, a psychologist, uh, but does Buddhist psychotherapy. Uh, wrote a book called Gradual Awakenings. We discussed Tibetan, psycho- Tibetan religion, uh, the Tibetan practice, and uh, psychotherapy, uh, but using the wheel of life uh, and, and Buddhism as a kind of ground for understanding are suffering and uh, the current times of psychedelics. We talk about psychedelics and Young, and uh, Miles was a great guy to talk to. And I'll be, um, that episode will come out probably in two weeks. Uh, then an upcoming recording is with Bernardo Castrup. I've got a number of other uh, uh, conversations in the queue. So be looking forward to it, I hope. And, uh, and I'll just drop those out as soon as they come out. So thanks for being here. Other news, uh, the Sacred Speaks is brought to you by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. Check that out at thecenter4has.com. Again, links below. Um, the music for the Sacred Speaks is by Modern Nations. Check them out at modernnationsmusic.com. And, of course, check out the Sacred Speaks at thesacredspeaks.com. Uh, if you're listening to this on audio, you can also watch it on YouTube and vice versa um, at all the affiliates. It's on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes. Google Play, SoundCloud, uh, and thanks for being here. Check it all out. Look at the website. Look at what this project's about. It's exciting, and it's growing, so uh, so thank you. Uh, what else? Uh, I think that's it as far as updates. Uh, for today's episode, it started as a, as a kind of funny joke between 
um, two of the participants, um, and Brian Marescu, another friend that we talked about doing a winter solstice special to talk about psychedelics and religion. Brian was unable to make it today, but uh, three of the four musketeers got together and had a conversation. Thank you to Tony. Thank you to Mark. Really appreciate your time here. Uh, and I, I'll, I'll just get started. So I want to introduce them, and then we'll get the episode going. So for now... Oh, and uh, I interviewed Mark in episode 68, so you can go back and check that out, of course. And I interviewed Tony in episode 69. So uh, after this, go back and check them out to get a little more personal, um, in-depth exploration of either of those individuals or both. Um, And I will read... Let me read their bios. I'll start with Mark Airy. Mark Airy, born in Virginia, raised outside of Washington, He converted to Orthodox Christianity from the Episcopal Church when he was 22 years old, graduated in 1975 from the University of Maryland, cum laude, Phi Beta Kappa, with a B.A. in Latin Language and Literature. In 1976, he matriculated at the Holy Cross Greek Orthodox School of Theology in Brooklyn. He graduated in uh, 1979, receiving an MDiv with distinction, and was subsequently ordained both deacon and presbyter in October. In the intervening 34 years, Ari served in six parishes, uh, last as interim dean of the Archdiocese in the Cathedral in New York City, as well as parishes in Baltimore, New York, uh, New Haven, uh, Nashville, uh, Frederick, um, New York City. Uh, and in 2006, he was awarded the rank of Economos in 2007, that of Proto-Presbyter, and in 2013, he asked to return to the ranks of laity in order to marry, and uh, he is both a Christian and Buddhist, I imagine. Uh, thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. Tony Bossis. Uh, Tony actually has a new appointment. This is pretty exciting. He's the new adjunct professor of classics and religious studies at the University of Ottawa, uh, a designation he's very excited about. He's a clinical psychologist and a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at NYU School of Medicine conducting FDA-approved clinical research with the psychedelic compound psilocybin for over a decade. Dr. Bossis was director of palliative care research and co-principal investigator on the 2016 landmark clinical trial demonstrating a significant reduction in emotional distress from a single psilocybin session in persons with cancer, specifically a rapid decrease in depression, anxiety, hopelessness, and demoralization, along with improvements in spiritual well-being and quality of life. He's study director and lead session guide on a clinical trial evaluating psilocybin-generated mystical experience upon religious leaders. His primary psychedelic research interest includes the treatment of -of end-of-life existential distress and advancing our understanding of consciousness, meaning, and spirituality. Dr. Bossis is a training supervisor of psychotherapy at NYU Bellevue Hospital and a co-founder of the Bellevue Hospital Palliative Care Service. He's faculty member for the Center for Psychedelic Therapies and Research Certificate Program at the California Institute of Integral Studies and for the Art of Dying Institute in New York City. He has a longstanding interest in comparative religion, mysticism, and the interface of psychology and spirituality. He currently maintains a private practice and consults in NYC. So thank you both. Really appreciate this. This is a fun and exciting conversation just to check in on both the threads of religion and psychedelics, how they interweave, and now how they're emerging onto the the field in both business, um, of course, into uh, the political realm. And it's really a radical time. So uh, thanks again, Tony and Mark. Thank you for being here and listening or watching. 
and uh, check out all the things The Sacred Speaks, and uh, be looking forward to the next episode in about two weeks. Thanks for being here. We'll leave it there. Okay, hang on. I got to get my I got to get my title down here. Um, so, welcome to the Sacred Speaks Winter Solstice Earth Celebration Special Holiday Christmas Saturian uh, Celebration. <laughs> Cover the bases. Cover the bases, my friend. Uh, we're we're here with Tony Vosses and Mark Airy, uh, two fellows that have become friends and uh, compadres in this work, and we're missing our fourth musketeer today, uh, Brian Marescu. He'll be flying away, and maybe he'll pop in. We might have a random pop in, but we'll see. We won't, uh, we won't hold out, but I'll be hopeful. Uh, so, guys, I've been, as we've been joking, I've been really excited to connect with you two. We're, we're essentially going to talk about whatever in the hell we get into, but we'll ground ourselves in the current state of psychedelics, mystical experience, of course, Tony, that's one of your playgrounds, and, and religion, and this, uh, this intersection between these arenas, because we, we see what's happening in psychedelics. We, we've got, a, a, I just spoke with folks over at Field Trip. There's one down here in Houston now, and they're working with ketamine-assisted therapy, doing great work with uh, psychiatry and um, certainly mental health. Um, ketamine treatment for addiction is, uh, excuse me, for depression and anxiety management is coming back with really solid research behind it. Um, but I noticed that there's also this really incredible fusion between what is happening in psychedelics and religious experience. So why don't we start by you guys just taking a brief state of the world, where are you right now uh, in this kind of work? Um, introduce yourself a bit. Again, I will have introed you, so your your uh, academic or scholarly um, a bio will have been read. So, uh, Tony, you're top left on my screen. Why don't you start and just give us a little bit of who you are and what you're up to and what you'd like to talk about today? Yeah, well, it's good to be here. Good to see you both. Uh, really, a, too, man. really, really a treat. And uh, happy Christmas and happy holidays to all the listeners out there in, in America and beyond. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Thanks. Um, yeah, I've been very grateful for the past uh, 10 to 15 years to be involved in this really interesting work of uh, the clinical application of psychedelics, primarily psilocybin, the active ingredient in many species of mushrooms. And uh, we can talk a bit about that history because it is quite remarkable how, that, how the mushrooms became uh, into awareness in our country um, and also the role of psychedelics um, going back in indigenous cultures and through antiquity. So we could, we'll circle back for that. Um, and I've been at NYU and uh, again, very grateful to be doing research in the, uh, in, in the capacity of these medicines, uh, psilocybin in this case, to generate some profound altered states of consciousness. Uh, one of them is the mystical experience or peak experience. And we'll talk about that today a lot um, in alleviating suffering. In a number of patients for for myriad clinical disorders, uh, there are now clinical applications in depression, eating disorders, smoking cessation, alcoholism, uh, post traumatic stress disorder, and the 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 clinical area that I'm really devoted to is trying to relieve um, 
the existential and spiritual suffering that accompanies so many humans at the end of this brief but precious life we have. And, you know, to die and to approach death and to have that kind of diagnosis has just been an unspoken, you know, uh, uh, source of suffering for humans throughout our history. And um, these experiences, this mystical experience, and I'll define that in a moment, we'll come back to it in a few moments, um, has been shown now in clinical research and scientific research, FDA approved, to rapidly, in our studies, uh, instantly, in a sustained way, reduce depression, anxiety, demoralization, which is an awful experience of existential distress and profound angst, mm -hmm. hopelessness in people um, with advanced cancer diagnoses. And it's been shown to greatly improve the spiritual well-being and overall quality of life. And large amounts of people in these trials, 70%, reported as the single most or top five most meaningful experience of their lifetime. So I look forward to talking today about what that is and why would that be? And this research is trying to alleviate suffering and, and various clinical issues. Um, and if we can die better, I think we live better. I think this death thing <laughs> hanging over all our heads like the sword of Damocles um, inhibits our life. And I think there's truth in, in the ancient wisdom that if we could learn to die better, we would live more fully. And I'll, you know, I'll, I'll quote right off the start, the great inscription in Mount Athos on St. Paul's Monastery, if you die before you die, then you won't die when you die. And whoever wrote that, what they meant was that if we could um, experience that in this waking life, we could be, to paraphrase the Christian, you know, terminology, be born again and live more fully in this life. And that's striking to me. I'm, I'm a scientist doing medical research, but I'm struck and I look forward to getting to this as well today in our time together. Why does consciousness and all throughout all the religions and in these experiences with psilocybin, why does this peak or mystical state so often draw the person into the, into, into the nature of suffering, into death and rebirth? Why would it do that? It says to me that we need to revisit and re-understand what is the nature of suffering. In these trials, they take the medicine once and we do very little. It's, the, it's consciousness that's almost like a self-healing mechanism, bringing them into the experience and it's typically through suffering. And by going into suffering, often they come out the other end with, the, with this enduring therapeutic benefit, but also insight. And that's remarkable. Psychiatry until now, treat suffering as a very bad thing. And it's bad because we suffer. We don't want pain. Our goal is to relieve suffering for all humanity. But we try to ignore it and push it out, control it through medications. This is a paradigm shift. This, in, this invites the person, really brings the person through the suffering. And that's where the learning takes place. So that's a bit of what I've been doing. I look forward to coming around. And when, when it comes around to me again, I'll, I'll define mystical experience to be, uh, to be clear about it for the audience. But uh, I've been very lucky in this research. And as, as the listeners now know, there's a kind of what they're calling a psychedelic renaissance going on. I don't quite like that term because we're not quite there yet. I think we're in a clinical reemergence of the medicines. But a renaissance would mean one of these medicines used appropriately and in a sober way, clinically and in a cultural way, if it goes beyond that. Uh, and, you know, we're not quite there yet, um, but um, certainly exciting, exciting times for all of us. And I'll speak about the dangers as well later. It's not all peaches and cream. An encounter with the self, to paraphrase Jung, is not easy.
and these are very difficult experiences and very and usually fraught with um, a lot of struggle. And there's something about that dark night of the soul, to, to paraphrase the 16th century Spanish mystic, <laughs> that is a lesson for us all. Amen. I'm done. Taxi. Good. <laughs> Pick him up. Uh, let me unmute. I'm you muted. I'm, I'm doing that thing where I mute, you know, like we all do on Zoom these days. Right. Uh, Tony, thanks, man. Like that's, uh, I can't wait to to dig into it. I've got to fill my pin up so I can uh, write down all this awesome stuff you guys say. Mark, take it, man. Where are you? Wow. That was great. It's great to be here, uh, especially on this very auspicious day. It is December 10th. It's the 53rd anniversary of the passing of, I consider the greatest mystic of the 20th century, Christian mystic, Thomas Merton, uh, mm. who was the greatest influence in my mm. spiritual life uh, over the last 53 years. I mean, it's uh, unbelievable. So it's, it seems fitting somehow that we gather together with good friends to talk about these subjects. Unlike Tony, I am neither scientist nor, nor physician, but I am interested in knowledge and in healing. So coming out of my uh, three decades plus experience as a priest of the Greek Orthodox Church, and practicing or trying to practice both knowledge and healing with people, I have uh, a deep interest in where this, I like the term psychological renaissance is, and I'll tell you why, Tony. The Renaissance rediscovered what the classics, what mm. classical Greece and classical Rome knew. I remember being at the uh, Vatican Museum a number of years ago and seeing what I consider the greatest statue in the world, Lacan and his sons, which was pretty much discovered by Michelangelo, okay? And how that influenced his own art form because of the incredible reality of the statue and the power and the energy of it. And what I'm hoping through this so-called psychedelic Renaissance is that there will be that same energy and that same commitment to truth, right? The commitment to truth of Plato, of, 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 of Aristotle, of, of Cicero, of all of the great classical figures whom we know their names, but we very seldom read what they write, right? We just, we recognize a, a, a voice, so to speak. But the, it will infuse what's going on today because, and I've said this before, I'll say it again. I see the I see the spiritual potential for these things as helping people ascend a ladder uh, and maybe skipping a couple of steps going up because we've been so uh, repressed spiritually, not only by religion, but also by commercialism, by hedonism, by materialism, all of these things which have really taken away from us. So we approach death, and since I'm the oldest guy on the phone, you know, here on the, on the call, <laughs> my, the actual, the actuarial table takes me closest, right? So that when you encounter it, when you come to that next phase, it shouldn't be a complete surprise. For you. It should be something that you can deal with because you've dealt with it in this life. And I, I compare it to some of this to the kind of dream work that people do, uh, to use the Buddhist expression, the bardo states, the in-between states. And I love the fact that Plato also talks about reality as being an in-between place, right? The metaxia of being, 
that there's an in-betweenness that we have as living creatures in this universe. That in-betweenness is everywhere. Um, and I think that psychedelics, which the root meaning means, right, to reveal or manifest the soul, that can be something that's very positive. Healing-wise, as you mentioned, Tony, all of those dysfunctions that we've gained, addictions mostly, right? And then uh, the trauma that's been inflicted upon us, but also knowledge, the science part. Because science means knowledge, and knowledge is not a bad thing. Although I think we have, we're coming into an anti-knowledge world or an anti-science world, it seems like in the modern age, which is surprising to me. But uh, I think both aspects, healing and knowledge, are the key to using all of these capacities to their best use. So I'm excited to be in dialogue with good friends like you and with other good friends that I've been meeting up with ever since Tony made me read The uh, Immortality Key by Brian Morescu, our fourth musketeer who is not here. <laughs> Thanks, so that's Mark. my intro. Good, good to have you here. Uh, so... Uh, of course, a lot of threads that uh, that you both introduced that we want to circle up on. But if we're good uh, academics, what we want to do is start with the problem. What's the problem as you see it? And so uh, I, I wonder if we can kind of ping pong back and forth, certainly staying in this order. And Tony, why don't you take that? And from your perspective, uh, professionally, personally, spiritually, what is the problem collectively and personally that the psychedelic renaissance or that um, this growing and evolving mystical presence in the uh, it's it's kind of left the inner sanctum of the temple and it's 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 making its way into the marketplace and that has enormous power and if if people aren't recognizing how tremendous of a move that is then they're not really paying attention so would you kind of noodle on that for a little bit yeah yeah uh, and I'm gonna quickly just piggyback something. Mark reminded me of it. In terms of these two disciplines of science and spirituality, the scientific and the sacred, they weren't always separate avenues. Yeah. You know, uh, somewhere around four centuries ago, more, and Carl Sagan, the great Carl Sagan, would often speak about this. They were united. I mean, the, this, the uh, religion of both science or spirituality and science, what are they? It, it's the human impulse to figure out what the hell's going on here. Where are we? What is this? What is mind? What is, what happens after we die? And, and they sadly became kind of separated, became separated. I do hope now we're, we're seeing a, um, and we'll find out over the years and decades ahead. And I, and I hope psychedelics can um, be a bridge or help be, build the bridge between the scientific and the sacred, between ancient wisdom and modern science. Um, I am very lucky, and so are all my colleagues. Um, we're scientists, but we also get to speak in a spiritual language because the experience these patients are having in this research is of a spiritual nature. You could describe it in a secular language as well. Um, and these experiences aren't, you know, they're just experiences. That's just how nature wired us. Uh, religion happens to have the way of describing them. But, you know, the, the master astronaut Edgar Mitchell had a mystical experience on the way back from the moon. Yeah. Um, he described it in just words, saying I was connected to everything that ever existed, and I saw the universe as a loving, harmonious uh, organism. Um, so spirituality is just one language, but um, we can describe it anyway, but it does seem to be our nature. 
And what I might say today about 42 times is we're wired for these experiences. And why is that? Why would that be? What's the point of that? In terms of this renaissance or reemergence, um, yeah, I mean, you mentioned from out of the lab into the marketplace. So in the lane I am in, it's still uh, in, in our labs, but it's about to come out in terms of, I think, rescheduled and being available prescription-wise for uh, the, the public. Um, and yes, it, it is out in, in the marketplace. And what worries me and people like me in the field is that, that we don't want to repeat what happened 50 years ago. Uh, that was a very unique time, and it's unlikely that would reenact in the same way. But these are serious experiences. I think they're in many ways tied to our essence. Uh, and, you know, we, 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 we don't want to sink to ship too early in the, at all, actually. So I worry a bit that these experiences are not, um, that, are, that folly and silliness emerges and, and uh, what happened 50 years ago happens again, where, where the research is stopped or it's, it doesn't advance, continually advancing. So I worry a bit. It's a great conversation to have too, as to these experiences. How, how do you unleash that onto a culture? How do we bring it into the world? You know, throughout history, and Mark could speak to this beautifully and, and you too, John, these mystery schools were mysteries for a reason, including mm -hmm. the loosest that we're gonna talk about today. You know, if you spoke about what happened, they use the penalty of death. Um, and what happened, and we don't fully know, there was a drink called Kikion, to use the Greek language, and we believe Plato and many others partake, partook in this incredible mystery school. But um, they were for a reason. Uh, even the, the beginning of the psychedelic journey back in the 60s, people like Huxley, the great Humphrey Osmond from Canada, um, they were kind of begging Leary and others don't do this. Keep it to the theologians, the researchers, the intelligentsia, the musicians. Let it trickle into the culture. It sounds arrogant. It sounds elitist. Um, but I, I think they were picking up on that thread of how do we how do we bring this into a culture? Something so rap, so so life changing. And I have no easy answer for that. Uh, right now, I'm fortunate we keep it. We're doing doing clinical trials, but. These are profoundly life-changing experiences. And we do it, and I'll talk about it throughout today, in a very careful model, preparation, like they did at Eleusis and throughout indigenous culture. Weeks of preparation, the experience itself with trained therapists, and then an integrative period, integration period. Um, and uh, you know, a big question is how, 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 do we, um, how do we access this in a larger way? But that's... Uh, I'll pass it around from there. Before, before we move, uh, would you comment a bit, Tony, on what happened 50 years ago that went wrong for anybody sure. who doesn't know? Yeah, and I'd love to come back to this as well. There's a lot to come back to. We're here for seven hours, right? Seven yeah. hours? <laughs> I'm in. I, I got I got a diaper on. Remember the old Jerry Lewis marathon? <laughs> we were kids. We used to watch them <laughs> all that long. For some reason, I loved them. I just I watched that for hours on end. Um yeah, great. Let me give it, it's a two minute, uh, these medicines, uh, this research began uh, half a century ago. Um, in 1938, Albert Hoffman discovered LSD by accident. In 1957, Gordon Wasson uh, had a, um, a, a ceremony in Mexico with Maria Sabina, a healer, uh, with psilocybin mushrooms. And he wrote about that in Life magazine. And that burst upon the scene uh, and some other compounds as well. And they began doing research 
into these compounds that triggered this incredible experience. Uh, and then soon research began with terminal cancer, primarily, and alcoholism. And many people may not know in your audience that alcoholism, AA, as founded by Bill Wilson, Bill Wilson had many LSD experiences. Mm -hmm. And that experience led him to this idea that this experience could serve as an ablation to want to drink what Jung and others felt was an attempt to merge with something much greater. Um, and the third application was a very famous study with theology students that I'll talk about later. So there was 10, 15 years of very productive research, peer-reviewed, government-supported, university. The, the drugs were legal, actually. People like Harry Grant said it changed his life. Mm -hmm. There was psychedelic psychotherapy, psychoanalysis. There was research. Um, and then sadly, because of the entire 1960s circus, <laughs> uh, much of it a beautiful circus, uh, much of it problematic, um, President Nixon signed into a, through a, an act of Congress um, uh, an act that just um, made the drugs illegal for the culture but more seriously, stop the research. Yeah. So when the culture gets too far ahead of the research, there's the risk, it just collapses. And that's what happened in 1970. Um, so we're very careful that this day in the lab, you know, we still do our trials, really trying to understand these medicines, their impact upon humans, and trying to achieve e efficacy and safety, which we are achieving. And I'll discuss some of the results later. And we hope that the cultural seen now uh doesn't upset the uh, apple cart so that's what happened half a century ago and uh you know i know i said more conservative than other people because of that but we have we have a lot at stake here and and a lot of money coming in to support these, this research i mean a lot of money and um we want to we want to want to keep doing this good research and when it's when it's released uh to relieve suffering it's done properly and carefully and these in these traditions have a role here. We stand upon the pioneers of the last century, but the experience itself is known throughout millennia. I think they formed the cradle of all the religions, this mystical core, what the great Aldous Huxley called uh, the perennial philosophy. Yeah. And then one little line on that, a lot of critics of the perennial philosophy, and I agree with them, if it gets used as one, it reduces to one soupy new age mm -hmm. mess. And that's not what he meant or, or people who uh, endorse that term mean. They respect all the beautiful lineages that grow out of that. Every, the six great religions and their frameworks, scripture, they're all incredibly beautiful. But they seem to grow out of this experience, which seems to, their system seems to, the purpose is to point to the ineffable experience of whatever this is. Um, and uh, let me turn it over to the, uh, to the great former Greek priest. <laughs> so what's the problem, Mark? Well, I think I think Tony has, has put his finger on it, but to me, I, I I'd say it maybe more succinctly is we're disconnected, and we have an urge, a need, a drive to connect, and um, you know, and we don't need psychedelics to do it. I I'm reminded again because of Thomas Merton of his experience at Fourth and Walnut, right? Where suddenly in Louisville, in the middle of a regular day on a street corner, he suddenly realized in his own words that I loved all of them. I loved every single person. And it was an overwhelming mystical experience for him. And he even says, and it was transformative for him, meaning even his, his perceptions 
the doors of perception opened slightly. And he said, I saw them all walking around shining like the sun. And from the Orthodox Christian perspective, this sounds just like St. Seraphim of Seraph, the most important mystic of the 19th century in Russia, who literally uh, used to appear to people like Christ did in the story of the transfiguration, right? Shining like the sun, glowing. And this wasn't uh, a transformation of him. He was actually simply seeing reality as it was because he was connected to it finally. And he wasn't blocked, you know, our bodies, right? Where, where do we end, right? One of the great early saints of the, of the church, uh, Gregory of Nyssa, one of my favorites, uh, undereducated, educated by his sister at home. He was homeschooled by his sister. He did not go to the Academy of Plato like many of the great saints went before the church closed it. And he said, why is it so hard for you to believe in the resurrection or life after death or something beyond this reality? He says, your mind can travel across the universe. So where do we extend? Where's our terminus ad quem, right? Where do we stop? Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. this is where psychedelics are very important because they can remind us who are very materialistic, right? We're very concerned about the body and the spaces that we inhabit, whether it's our home, our car, our gym, our restaurant, you know, we, we go into containers, right? And we treat the body like it's a container of some foreign thing, which we call a soul sometimes. But no, we are already connected to everyone and everything. We just don't feel that, right? And so if we don't feel it, and this is something unfortunate about us as humans, if we don't feel it, then we don't know it because we need to experience it. And this is what I think that psychedelics can do uh, properly used in all of the parameters that Tony has laid out so beautifully. You know, we sometimes criticize the Gnostics in Christianity, right? This word Gnosticism, it gets this pejorative term to it. But if you understand what Gnosis actually means in the Greek language, it means knowledge that comes through experience, your own mm -hmm. personal mm -hmm. experience, not something imposed upon you from outside. It's not book learning. It's not facts, right? We've seen where facts take us, right? In, in our world. Now we have alternative facts. Now facts can change and people abuse them and use them for their own specific ends. And it's just not political. It's also religious, right? Mm -hmm. The church I've said this for, I, don't, I, I, was, I said this as a priest many, many decades ago, and I continue to say it. Religion, I don't care whose religion, ends up being 99% control and 1% transformation. Those are supposed to be flipped. Yeah. Religion is supposed to be about transformation, not about control. Because if you need someone to tell you, you know, don't commit murder today, you have bigger issues right, than, than your religious faith. So what Tony has said, how does this come into the culture? I actually do believe that it is going to be through religious channels mm. that it will leach down into the culture because they both technically aspire to the same thing, transformation, right? We're afraid of transformation because that may mean that I have to love my neighbor whom I really don't like that may mean I have to be generous when I'm really greedy. That may mean 
I have to forgive people that have hurt me and I want to hold that grudge because that grudge is a feeling and it makes me feel alive where if I let it go, I'm afraid that forgiveness won't give me the same power. I, I think we're really at a place where we need to leapfrog as a species. I really think we do mm -hmm. because we've gotten so bound up and we've seen where the materialistic approach, what that's done to the planet, right? right. We're destroying our planet. We're destroying our home with all of our materialism. So I think religion is going to play a very big role, not just because the end goal may be the same, because the religions will argue about it ultimately, right? Everyone's gonna say, no, we're right. No, we're right. No, no, no. But the goal is the same, but it's the vehicle that I think will be the same because you don't need a psychedelic experience to have a transformative experience in your life. Nobody who knows anything about psychedelics would maintain that. However, people who are locked in either through trauma or through addiction or through simply being numbed by living in this contemporary world, it's a booster shot. What else can I say? I mean, we should point out just quickly for the, for the audience, the mystical experience, I'll define it in a minute, but yes, psychedelics were one way to experience that clearly they've been occurring naturally for thousands of Absolutely. the dawn of humanity. And the scale we use, that I will get to eventually in this talk, the scale we use to measure it is built upon the features from those naturally occurring experiences throughout history. Walter Penke leaned upon the features given forth by William James and, and Stace, the great mystical experience you know, a scholar. Um, and so these occur naturally through spontaneously being in nature being in the woods making love doing art dancing um prayer meditation um 49 percent of americans in a recent pew study report having religious type experiences not these three hour type we see with psilocybin but a glimpse of that again why is that why are we worried for these experiences i'm sorry john you're going to say something no I, and to add to that is trauma you know, that the, the, there's um, and, and to then fold that into what you were saying, Mark, is I, I really like this word religion. I, I love it. And people don't. You know, I, I think uh, I've been on this whole project of the Sacred Speaks. I've been kind of using it as my own vision quest, you know, like I, I want to understand these ideas and to, to uncrack the term religion, the, the etymology, it either means rebind, reread, or reconnect. And, and to what? Reconnect to what? You know, like, well, we've become lost, we've become disconnected, and we need to reconnect with what the Buddhists would call the clear light, or our true nature, or the essence of the, uh, the world. And, and there's a kind of uh, enchantment of the mundane. You know, like what I loved reading this article a while ago about uh, microdosing LSD in uh, California. All these tech folks are taking LSD. And this one guy said, you know, it's like you sprinkle fairy dust all over your daily life, and that's it re-enchants things. And, you know, I've heard Rick Doblin at MAPS talk about this. He's like, look, we're not really advocating taking a substance regularly. You know, like we're advocating macrodosing <laughs> is what he, what he called it, you know to have an extraordinary experience that and and when you're when you're left what happens is that from your own personal experience you have had such a shift or even a slight shift in your perception of reality 
that you then can no longer question um, what is, uh, or then you do you begin to question your reality in a in a powerful way that says reality can be way more possibilities than I have ever imagined it. I don't know what it is. I, I, it's not concrete, but just the question of saying it is a multiplicity of dimensions and potentials that I can return to or reconnect with, and religions have historically housed the the processes by which somebody can come into those openings and reconnective experiences with divinity, with the self, with their own potency, and with um, uh, the, the hidden concealed aspects of reality that are beyond our, what Jung would call the spirit of the times, right? So he's, um, so I, I, I like where we're going with this regarding the religious nature of the psyche, as Lionel Corbett calls it. Um, I love the way you said that, by the way, when you say religions house this, right? For whatever reason, that's the discipline that's, that housed but this experience. But of course, to quote Thomas Merton, um, the, gates of he- the gate of heaven is everywhere. You know, everything yeah. should remind us of, of whatever that ineffable is, but it, ha- it has been religion and philosophy and other lineages as well. Um, so, but that's important, but it's elsewhere too. Now it's in the medical model and our science. <laughs> yeah. Well, and your point is well taken, Tony, earlier when you were talking about, I think it was you, science and religion at one point being housed in the same space. You know, that I've seen some scientists who are the most religious people in the world that have no dogmatic institutionalized religion. I talked to a guy um, Tom Cheatham on this podcast, where I, I saw his religious nature reveal itself when he was talking about tree moss. I mean, this dude went nuts over tree moss and was like, holy shit, you know, you're, it's opening, for, for you, it opens aspects of nature. And, and I, I no longer see the science religion split because, again, some of the most profoundly powerful scientists I've known are deeply religious people. Albert Einstein. He totally. Yes. Talk about this every day. He said religion without science is blind. Yeah. Science without religion is lame. And people should and Google him. There's this large, he wrote a beautiful op-ed in the New York Times in the 19, I guess, 40, uh, 50s, um, about this topic of just awe. I mean, the, you know, just awe of the universe that that's a spiritual experience. Uh, you know, Carl Sagan always said, my God is the God of Einstein and Spinoza. I mean, that, it, you know, all of this, what is this, you know, um, and uh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Um, it's one of the places where religion has failed, Tony, in my opinion, too. Yeah, because it's very interesting. If you look at uh, language, take the word that, you know, people say the fear of God, right? The fear of God, which has been used to oppress people for millennia. Right. It actually is properly translated as being in awe of God, the awe of God, not fear, not cowardice, not trembling and shaking and kneeling down and saying, oh, please forgive me, God, I'm such a bad person. And this is where religion becomes a very harmful container. And really, the divine presence isn't there. I mean, there's a wonderful story in uh, Josephus, uh, wrote the Jewish histories, and at the end of the temple, sometime before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, there was this voice heard from within the Holy of Holies. 
and this whoosh of wings. And the voice said, let us leave this place. And at that point, all of the Shekinah, all the glory was gone, finally. Mm. And then it was destroyed, of course, by the Romans. But, you know, our containers, whether it's church, synagogue, temple, you know, whatever it might be, they have to be places where above all else, the human person is being transformed and being connected. If it's not, then it's just a ritualized I'm not even sure what it is. And as someone who was a, a decades-long Greek Orthodox priest, I know about ritual. I and mean, we got we got ritual to beat the band, right? You know this, Tony. I mean, and, and we love our rituals. And they can be transformative. They can be, but only if they have content. And this is where uh, religion needs to be reinitialized, if you will, because religion, as you were pointing out the, the meaning, right, of the word, to re-ligament something, to realign yep. something. It, it comes to mean in Latin, after a while, superstition. So mm -hmm. it goes from realignment and reconnection to superstition. And we've got to get it more into the realignment stage and take it out of the superstition stage. So you know, Christianity was insulted in, when it was first, uh, it was called a religion by the Romans in the first couple of centuries as an insult. Oh, it's just a religion, meaning a superstition. Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you just real quick. So putting aside mystical experience as the ground of all these beautiful lineages, um, you just says ritual. So isn't that the, wasn't that the point of religion or ritual that it should connect us to the ineffable that like the Greek icons, they will windows into the soul. So the, the senses, the chanting, the all of that, I, I like to think of it as echoes of God. It should, it should point towards the ineffable. Wasn't that the point of ritual? All ritual begins there. The problem is, is when the ritual becomes a means of making money, right. a means of establishing a caste system, right? I mean, this is one of the things that the, uh, um, the Brahmins uh, really resented about the Buddhists, right? And it's one of the reasons they say that the Lord Buddha did not create a series of sacraments. There is no Buddhist rite of anything. No marriages, no baptisms, mm. no circumcisions. There's nothing because he didn't want to interfere with the Brahmins business model. They had that covered, right? We, if you're going to get married, come to us. We've got a ceremony for you. We got a, you know, the, the, uh, the, the menu, right? Of which ceremony do you want? Religion, yes, originally those rituals were to tie you. I mean, again, they're symbols, right? But what does symbol mean? Symbol means to bind something together, to bring it together. Uh, the original symbols in ancient Greece were, uh, they were commercial objects. They were sticks. And then you would take the stick and mark it. And then you would cut the stick in half right down the center. You would take half, I would take half. And then when our deal was done, we would bring the sticks back together and bind them. That's what a symbol is. It's supposed to bind us to the divine reality. You're talking about icons, Tony. That, the icon is not there to be an object. The icon is there to be a subject, right? right? It's not, it's supposed to create some sense of a non-dual reality. But what we've done is we have reduced them to being only rituals and we've denuded them. Right. And this is why Christ, I mean, if you look at the life of Jesus Christ, we're getting ready for Christmas. 
why is it every time he performed some miracle, he was always doing it in a way that was offensive to the ritualized environment around him because he was just a jerk? No, he was doing it in order to kind of break their consciousness. What's more important, the human being or your ritual or your rules and regulations? And this is where the church has a long way to go. I really do. And I say that not just as an Orthodox Christian, I think I, all, I mean, you, you don't have to have, you know, a lot of people look at Protestantism and they don't see ritual. Oh, there's, as someone who was raised as a Protestant, there's more ritual, there's as much ritual in Protestantism than there is in high traditional Catholicism or Orthodoxy. It just may not be decorated the same way, but the ritual is there because it's, it's all methodologies of control. Well, let's, let's look at this for a second, Mark, because what you're saying is, and I know you have a, a lot of experience in this, because it, one of the central tenets of Christianity, certainly, is not to create false idols, but we, we collectively, because if I'm answering this, prob, this question, what is the problem, I think there's a human tendency to um, shape our world in our own image. Absolutely. And so we do that on a microcosmic level in my own personal life, where I you know, uh, do it with my friends, do it with my lifestyle, do it with, and we do it on a collective level. So we, we try to bring reality into, uh, to grasp it and to hold it and to, to remain con in control of it. So in Christian um, formation, it, 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 one of the tenets is saying don't create false idols, but yet it continues to create false idols, right? Like that's, and so we're not dealing with a problem of religion, a problem of psychedelics, a problem of culture. We're dealing with inevitabilities of human development. Is that, yeah. are we, we tracking so far? Well, I, you, you remind me of something. One of my favorite uh, texts in, in all of scripture is the first epistle of John, the beloved disciple, uh, which is, that, that contains my favorite verse, which is God is love. Theos God is love. There's your definition. The last verse of, if you open your Bible up, go to the very last verse. The last verse reads like this. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Mm. Now, he, we're talking, this is first century Christianity that comes right out of Judaism. They really have an idolatry problem. They're all going around with statues and this isn't, that wasn't the, that's not what he was talking about. He was talking about the idols of the mind. He was talking about the idols of their own making that control them ultimately. And, and you're absolutely right, John. This, uh, this idolatry that has substituted for religion is a very um, deep and powerful trend because it depends upon one thing, ultimately, power differentials. Hmm. Someone who wants to have power. Mm -hmm. They create the idol, right? I'll never forget. I was I was preaching in a mega church once in San Diego, <laughs> and uh, I had to go to I had to be in the service beforehand. <laughs> I was still a priest. I was invited to preach on the Book of Revelation, and uh, I'm in front of five thousand people. So they have this service which looks more like a cheesy, uh, you know, like like a like a concert, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting next to the head pastor, who's a lovely guy. <laughs> and 
And suddenly smoke starts emitting from like these things on the stage. And I just leaned over to him and I said, hey, by the way, if you ever want any real incense, call me because that's the <laughs> point, okay? I don't know what the hell's going on in here. Yeah. It was just like to create this environment in which we could whip everybody up into a fever, right? Everybody's waving their hands and crying and getting upset. <laughs> and then the preacher can get up, in this case, it happened to be me, and then manipulate them, basically. Manipulate them out of their money, manipulate them into certain attitudes toward other people. In this particular church, it was, unfortunately, it was like gays are bad. Like gays should be burnt at the stake, unfortunately. I learned later. Really? That's, that's what we want to whip up people up into? Hatred of others and opposition of others? And this is where, and I think Tony would agree with me, the non-duality that sometimes accompanies the psychedelic experience or the, the medicine is something which is rather shocking to a lot of people's systems because they're, they're not used to experiencing that. They haven't had that kind of gnosis in their life. Right. Would you that's agree, Tony? Sure. I mean, our research shows that that experience has been called with the better outcomes, but it's that transcendence, and I should walk through these features of the experience, is that transcendence, and that could be earth-shaking, which is why we do it in the model we do it in, because people literally transcend the body itself, time and space. Let me brief you, by the way, I, before I do the features, Mark, you set me up here with a perfect, um, you threw a <laughs> softball, Thomas Merton and God is love. So I want to read you just three sentences from a letter from Alice Huxley to Thomas Merton in 1959, when Merton asked Alice Huxley, what is it with the psychedelics? You know, why do you do this? Because as far as I know, Merton never did psychedelics. Um, and um, Huxley writes to him, and part of the letter is this, to Thomas Merton, psychedelics helped me understand many of the obscure utterances to be found in the writings of the mystics, Christian and Oriental an unspeakable sense of gratitude for the privilege, uh, privilege of being born in this universe. And then in parentheses, gratitude is heaven itself, said Blake. And then Huxley continues, and I know what he was talking about. And then a transcendence of the ordinary subject-object relationship, a transcendence of the fear of death. And I love this last sentence, a sense of solidarity with the world and the spiritual principle and the conviction that in spite of the pain, the evil, uses the word evil, and all the rest, everything is somehow all right. An understanding, not intellectual, but a direct understanding of the affirmation that God is love. Isn't that beautiful? And that, that in many ways summarizes our science. The quick features of this experience as measured by the scientific scale we use is only a few features. The subjective experience of um, all things are connected, unity. All things are literally connected, the person tells us. After the psilocybin-generated peak experience. The noetic quality, a term coined by William James, that one is encountering ultimate reality. People rarely say that was in these trials. That was a temporary drug effect. The language they use is more like, that was more real than this. A sense of ineffability, hard to talk about, and impossible to describe, although they do it beautifully a sacredness, awe, humility, wonder, but this sense that Huxley's talk of transcendence. If, if you're dying of cancer in, these, in our cancer trials, 
And if this body is about to fail, it's working in a month, a year, 10 days. That is a profoundly anxiety-provoking experience because I am my body. Through these experiences of transcendence, transcending even the body, and seeing things from a much different panoramic you know, perspective, um, they have the insight. They tell us in the research, I'm not my body. I'm not just my, I'm something more enduring. There's something more enduring about me, whatever that is. I'm not just bound by this material body. That's a profound gift for a person dying of cancer. And the thing Huxley said, I hear a lot in, in these trials, and it's amazing that somehow everything is all right. He uses the word evil intentionally. Huxley didn't use words randomly. He was very careful. He was a great writer. That, and people tell us that despite the cancer, this, we've had patients have seen all the wars of humankind. Bill Richards, my dear friend and mentor in his book, um, Sacred Knowledge, writes about the wars, the bloodshed, that somehow there's this, a sense, even with all that, that it's all right. Even as I'm dying, it's all right. That sense of it's all right is such a gift. And where does that come from? I mean, and so, um, yeah, Thomas Merton and Ellis Huxley. So um, it's Huxley Merton Day here on the Sacred Speaks Radio Show. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I have to. I have to say, Tony, I really appreciate that quote from Huxley. But also, what you're saying, because I can tell you, as someone who was a parish priest and I've ministered to hundreds of people as they die, I was with over 50 people when they die. Um, and I, I know I was downgrading ritual, but I can tell you, uh, providing what most people would call last rites, but providing ritual at the end of life for people and allowing them to tap in to whatever the memory is, whether they're very old and there's a very lengthy memory, or whether they're very young. I can remember being with a 15-year-old girl the night before a heart operation. She died on the table. But I remember how she was as I was giving her Holy Communion and the sobriety and the solemnity of that young girl who I will never forget mm. has never left. Me. And she was transformed. I mean, she was, she knew, you know, they call it in the Catholic tradition, the viaticum, something for the journey, right? Yeah. And she knew I'm going to take a journey. I'm not living, no matter what all the doctors tell me and my family tells me, no, I'm going on a journey. And at 15, she was somehow prepared for it. And I had the enormous privilege and honor to be the clergyman who was with her at that time. But I, I've witnessed it time and time again. Now, if we could, you know, the Eucharist and Brian, I'll say it because Brian's not here, but the Eucharist <laughs> was called Tophamacon Tisafthersias in the early church. It was called the medicine of immortality. And pharmacon, right? That's the word we use for pharmacology and drugs. And there is a sense in which that ritualized bread and wine, people may not believe it's the body and blood of Christ. I do, but that's a different conversation. It is a medicine that prepares them to open up to the next door. And what Tony has been talking about in his studies, the, the studies that I've read with end of life situations, it is a medicine that prepares them to open up the next door. It's no different. Yeah. It's just a different material substance but spiritually, I don't think they're different. Yeah, we stopped using uh, uh, deeper intoxicants, right? Like uh, uh, only intoxicants that affected us for a moment versus eight hours. 
and according to Carl Ruck, you know, you read some of his stuff, and you're gonna you're gonna read that the sacrament on some level was a Amanita muscaria. You know, they're looking at a particular mushroom that was used, and and I, you know, not to get, I think sometimes we can get lost in that. So so I want to back up. So Tony, and you guys interrupt or change directions if you feel like it. But Tony, you said something earlier about the nature of suffering, and I'm struck by mm-hmm. having you both here so you can bring your traditions and your personal experiences to talk about how you see the nature of suffering through your lens. Can we can we go there? Is that, is that good? Yeah. I just start quickly, then I want to hear Mark's take on this, spending his life. You know, I'm always impressed by priests, and, you know, as a kid, you know, would I be a priest? Because you look at them on the altar, and they're always around suffering. I mean, they're burying people. I mean, this is, you know, I, yes. I'm always amazed when I speak to a priest friend because I forget, you know, I mean, I work in palliative care, so I see dying people too, but I'm not yeah. seeing the bodies every day. These guys, these priest clergy are, you know, spraying the oil on the dead body. I mean, they're seeing dead bodies every, it's remarkable to be that close to death, yeah. which I think, is, you know, as you know, it's, it's a teacher. It's the, is death the greatest teacher? Yes. Um so quickly, again, I said this earlier, Benton, that seems to be the, the gift of these medicine psilocybin-generated experiences. It isn't the psilocybin, the experiences they generate, which is mystical peak experience, which is part of who we are, our essence, uh, something in consciousness, it's a mystery, a pure mystery. All these patients, depression, smoking, cessation, but these end-of-life patients, the experiences themselves, and we prepare them to follow wherever it takes you. The, rec- the chief recommendation is trust the experience. Whatever comes up, move into it. Don't fight it. Even death itself, move into it. And there's even these death rebirth experiences we witness in these patients. Um, and again, why would that be? Consciousness seems to have a self-healing mechanism. And everyone on these, not everyone, many of these experiences draw them into right into suffering. It seems that, and it's above my pay grade, so maybe Mark knows more than me about this. I don't know why we're designed this way. Why did nature, why, why is this whole thing, why is this whole ballgame designed this way? But suffering seems to be a portal, as religion mm-hmm. even shows. Christianity, I mean, you know, it is the portal. Uh, very concrete, by the way. Other religions say the same thing. Christianity's like, all right, now do you get it? We're going to concretize it. There's a man on the cross. He dies. <laughs> exactly. And, 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 and now he came back. There's no death. Do you get it now, guys? And we still don't. Yeah. Get it. <laughs> I mean, and um, on. Oh, go ahead. But it just that's all that. But it draws us in. And why is that? Why is suffering the portal? I mean, why why is it all designed this way? But it seems to be the. And in these studies, people. Often in our, in our trials, everything falls away. Uh, identity, sometimes the body itself, non-attachment to quote the Buddhists, and it creates anxiety. That's the panic of a, of a psychedelic experience, the so-called bad trip. It's all fading away. My name is this, I'm a doctor, I'm this, I'm that. And then what's left if it all leaves? And of course, that's the answer. What's left, what's enduring? And very often they tell us about this incredible, overwhelming tearful experience of love or agape i use the greek word that love towards self others and that all of this to paraphrase paul tillich the ground of being is made of some energy called love to hear that in a scientific fda approved trial and that seems to recalibrate their assumptions about life death and consciousness and whatever all this is and even if they have the experience it's all over face to black when i die there's this profound sense of gratitude 
for having lived this life. So um, that's profound. And I think it, that's where psychiatry can learn from these experiences, that we shouldn't just push away suffering. We need to see it as a teacher. Um, and for some reason, it's, it's here. Uh, uh, why we designed this way, I don't know, but um, uh, it seems to be a portal. And it's, um, uh, and as Mark, I'm curious your take on being around death so much. People often ask me and ask people in palliative care and hospice, is it not depressing, all these people? Actually, it's the opposite. Right. It's like, wow, the, 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 the gift of being close to that. There's a great scene in the in the Mr. and Mr. Rogers. Did you see the movie Mr. Rogers with Tom Hanks? I haven't no. seen it yet. It, out a couple of years ago. There's a great scene where in the movie, <laughs> um, two stories. There's a journalist. His father is dying, and in the scene, Mr. Rogers, Tom Hanks, the character, Tom Hanks, the Greek Orthodox, <laughs> um, he, he bends over and he whispers. They're whispering to each other, and on the way out the door, the journalist says to uh, Mr. Rogers, "What did you whisper to him?" To you prayed for him? And Mr. Rogers says, I don't pray for him. The place he's at, so close to that mystery, I asked him to pray for me. <laughs> is that great? Like, what is, what is, what is that? Um, what's that mystery of where we go? And he's asking him, you know, so to be close to that is actually a teacher. I'm very humbled and gratitude for the people who I've worked with who are at the end of life. And Mark, you've worked with so many people who you've You've buried, literally buried bodies. What is that? What was that like for you? Well, I mean, before I get into that, but I do want to just uh, dovetail with what you said about Christ on the cross and suffering. It's fascinating to me when I consider the crucifixion, which I have my whole life, right? <laughs> All 67 years of it. On the cross, whether it was three hours or six hours is... You know, it looks different sometimes. Was he crucified at nine in the morning or 12 noon? There's a little bit of a confusion there. He didn't last very long, right? You're supposed to last three days on a cross. The Romans mm. invented this torture. It just goes to show how beat up and tired he was. He hadn't slept in two days. They've been pummeling him, flogging him, dissing him, thatting him. But when he finally finds his way to the cross and they offer him the what they call the vinegar mixed with myrrh or the wine mixed with myrrh, meaning they offer him a painkiller because even those Roman soldiers who nailed him in, they had a little mercy for this guy. He already looked like he was you know, out of it. And it says that Christ tasted it and would not drink it. Mm. He took all the suffering. He experienced all of it. And in a theological way, what we teach in Orthodox Christianity, at least, is that he experienced all of our suffering and solidarity with us. Everything. There's nothing that we have not su that we have suffered that he has not suffered, so that there can be a transformative relationship, and that it does, like you said, what follows the crucifixion? Well, th not three days on the cross, but three days later, the resurrection, right? And this, and the truth of suffering, isn't it remarkable? The first of the noble truths of Buddhism is what? Suffering. There it is. There is suffering in the world. It just is, right? Uh, we have to deal with it. How do we deal with it? How do we transform it? And how do we, how do we find ourselves transformed through it? My, my new friend, uh, Father Richard Rohr, uh, a fellow New Mexican down in Albuquerque, likes to say there's only two ways really to grow spiritually, great suffering and great love. 
Those are the two paths. And they actually do completely converge, right? If you've been through great suffering, you will know great love. And if you know great love, you have been through great suffering. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a wonderful, in a sense, and from the end result, right? When you look where you arrive, what the suffering actually does for you. And I can tell you as a priest, I have seen suffering that I would not wish on any creature, especially people dying of cancer, children dying of cancer. And, you know, it's, it's, it's brutal. And, you know, you, you feel it with them and yet you realize it's not you, you're still alive. You, you, you drive home at night from the hospital. They didn't get to go home, but at the same time to witness the transformation in people's lives at those last moments and the reverberations of it, incredible reverberations uh, of, of how that creates something that's deeper in those who live on afterwards because they experienced great suffering by the loss of a child, by the loss of a parent, by the loss of someone they dearly loved. It's, it's, it's really amazing. And it's, this is where I learned this from my first boss, the Dean of the Cathedral, where I was ordained in Baltimore, the late Father Constantine Manos, who was a wonderful priest. And he told me, he said, you're gonna do all of your sacraments by yourself. I'll be with you for the first one, but you know, we have a, we had like 4,000 people in the parish. It was a huge parish. He says, we can't do them. He says, but every funeral we do together. You don't do any funerals by yourself mm. because they need us in that moment. They need all of us to be there. It was a great lesson I learned really was because in that moment of grief, the aftermath of the dead death of an individual or individuals in that grief, there is the possibility of transformation and it can go. In fact, there's almost the inevitability of transformation, but it can go either way, right? It can be very destructive afterwards or it can be healing. And, and this is where the message of the church, but I, I dare say it's not so much the message, it's the messenger, it's who's delivering it. Do you feel like you're being treated with respect and love and understanding? Do you feel accepted? no matter what kind of a person you are. That makes all the difference in the world. That's transformative. Action transforms. Uh, that's why I love Richard Rohr's approach to contemplation because it's contemplation and action. Mm -hmm. It's meditation and praxis, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It can't just be the one. It has to, it has, you have to externalize it somehow or the internal, the light will fade and you have to feed the fire. Uh, it, it has to be fed fascinating beautiful mark can you, that's incredible can you can you speak to something quickly because when you mentioned christ on the cross and the suffering and to be in the presence of suffering is to be in that in that in that space of uh, mystery or this, I, I once read it and i know i spoke to you about this years ago and you, you'll talk about it better than i can um peter matheson the great zen master and writer uh in one of his books writes about a an Orthodox, Russian Orthodox Bible where the writing is, and I think Mark, you say this is how they all should have been, but anyway, in this one writing of this one Orthodox Bible, um, on the cross where the thief asks, will you, I'm paraphrasing that, will you, when will we, you know, be in heaven? And, and, and the 
conventional wisdom is Christ says, well, later, somehow implies later on today you will be in heaven or paradise, whatever. But Matheson says in this, in this version, it's very clear, Jesus replies, this is it. Mm. Right, this moment is paradise, suffering. You know, this is the moment. You know, be here now. Um, and you once said to me that that that's the message, right? It, it wasn't supposed to be a linear. Later, some you know, later we're going to go to this. That this is it. Is that right? Well, I mean, the, the, the dialogue that you're talking about is the two thieves who are actually outlaws. I guess would be better than thieves, but who were crucified with Christ. And the one guy is, you know, railing at him. Hey, if you are the Messiah, why don't you save uh, save yourself and get us out of here too, right? right? You know, rescue us, which is what most people treat religion as, right? Mm -hmm. Rescue me, God. I, I screwed up. I committed adultery. Uh, uh, I, I don't want my husband to find out about it. So rescue me. Or I've, I, I relapsed on drugs or I relapsed on alcohol. So rescue me. Forgive me. And I hate to say it, the church cultivates this kind of behavior to keep the customer coming back. I hate to say it like that, but that's my experience. The other thief is fascinating. He looks at the, he doesn't really address Christ first. He talks to the other guy first. And he says, hey, this guy hasn't done anything wrong. And he said, you know, I, I'll, at one point in my life, I wanted to put this on my tombstone, but since I'm gonna be cremated now, I don't need a tombstone, but <laughs> we are getting what we deserve. Now that's honesty. We are getting what we deserve, Jack. We did the crime. We got to do the time, even if it's on a cross. But this guy, he hasn't done anything wrong. And then he looks to Christ and he says, remember me. Right. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. You know, St. John Chrysostom says that the thief, the thief proved to be a thief until the bitter end because he stole heaven by one phrase, remember me. And Christ says to him, today, Simeon, you will be with me in paradise. And in the Orthodox Church, it's fascinating, that same word. When we say today, we mean, and I think this is where the Slavonic, uh, where Matheson is tying into with the Russian priest. Today means now, right. this moment. Mm -hmm. right. Time is uh, there's a Aristotelian expression called simvevikotos keros. It means time, it collapses in. It's like, it, it's like a telescope that collapses in to a point that's simply the now. It's present, right? It's just present. And you will be with me in paradise. So you're there now, and this is it, right? And that's transcendent. So the definition scientifically in our research is past, present, and future collapse into the present moment. Yes. Meister Eckhart's line, a thousand years ago, a thousand years hence, they're all happening in the moment. Uh, and physics, physics confirms that time isn't linear. It's a bit of an illusion. Um, it's all happening here and now. And these experiences, uh, that, that's beautiful. Um, well, I so mean, even in, even in religious ritual, I mean, in orthodoxy, when a priest consecrates the, uh, the bread and the wine, the last thing that he says, he goes, remembering, therefore, your sacred passion and all that has been accomplished for us the cross, the grave, the resurrection on the third day, the ascension into heaven, all of those are in the past, right? Any priest who says those words is making an historical reference. And then the priest says, and your second and glorious coming again, hasn't happened yet. That's because everything is being collapsed into this one moment. The through the ritual, we collapse time itself. And Buddhism preaches the same thing. They always speak about the Buddhas of the three times, 
the past, present, and future. How can you be talking about the future Buddha? They haven't happened yet. Right. Oh yeah, they have. <laughs> Everything is collapsed into the present moment, which is why, and I'm not criticizing meditation practice and breath practice, I, I do it myself. But that's what a lot of people in, in contemporary, I guess, whether it's the yoga universe or whether it's the meditation universe or the mindfulness universe, right? It's, it's all about coming back to your breath so that you are present in that moment of breath. Because truly, the only breath you have is the one you're taking. <laughs> there mm -hmm. is no other. All the ones in the past, gone. All the ones in the future, not yet. So everything is in that present breath. And that's mm -hmm. what I think Christianity needs to be reinfused with because it was very, it's very clear when you read the Gospels that Christ was very aware of this. His awareness was perfect in this regard. And occasionally the disciples got into it. Occasionally, but not very often. That's remarkable. And, that, and that's what, again, these, the patients report that it all, if it's all here now, there's no past, present, future, then how do I die? There's nowhere to go. I'm, I'm here already. You know? and, and you know, we see that on these trials. Um, just real quick, the, the Greek word Sibana today, the orthodox version of that, that, that means the present? Yes, it's used liturgically to start every hymn, meaning like on, uh, uh, on Christmas, we will say today Christ is born, meaning right now Christ is born, not Christ was born 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. No, he's being born right now, or today he is incarnate, or today he is crucified, or today he is risen from the dead. We use this word today to kind of shock the dualistic thinking church into come together right now over him. That's the Beatles tribute. Tell me that was for you. <laughs> well, let me, um, I want to keep in this line of uh, suffering and then maybe we'll launch on to something else. I'm, I'm struck by uh, psychopathology, you know, as a as a psychotherapist, we learn about psychopathology, and we're we're currently in a very medicalized model that wants to look mm. at or, or view view um, the movements of our mind, our body, and our spirit in a way that is moral. This is good. That is bad. This is pleasure. That is pain. And so we we've created these procedures to try to eradicate or um, uh, get rid of suffering. But if suffering is at the core of mystical experience or religious experience, and our entire psychotherapeutic approach is to try to get rid of depression and rid of anxiety, there's the Jungian in me that's beginning to come out and say, like, I, you know, uh, uh, the psychotherapy that I do every week uh, with folks is to try to resituate the way they relate to and interpret their own suffering, because they'll see it through the lens of the spirit of the times, to make that reference again, that this is bad, rather that this is rather than this is opening me, or beckoning me, or bringing me into a deeper relationship with my body, with my loved ones, with the world, with the, with the earth. And so I, 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 it, this comes down to what I would imagine or what I know happens in religion is the interpretation problem. We, we misinterpret language. We misinterpret myth. We misinterpret pain. And we certainly misinterpret uh, a depression. Now, I'm not going to say that depression is good. I don't want to make the moral split here. 
But I am saying that in most cases, there are, of course, extremes. We can apply statistics to this. I get it. There's going to be X amount of people who are clinically depressed, and that needs to be dealt with. But if we have a culture and a collective that seeks out convenience and comfort at to try, again, to try to shape our world in our own image to suit our own needs, and we imagine that anxiety, what we call anxiety and depression and psychopathology is bad and to be eradicated, aren't we missing an opportunity to open ourselves up to our own religious nature? Um, and, and that's part of this problem back where we were at the beginning on we're disconnected. Right there, we're disconnected from our interior self that's beyond our ego that communicates with us in ways that uh, are uncomfortable at times. So I'm going to throw that out there to y'all. As you know, <laughs> you just beautifully described the transpersonal vision, right? That was the fourth wave. So it was there were four waves of psychotherapy, psychology, you know, uh, psychoanal psychoanalysis, behavioral, the humanistic, and then the great Abraham Maslow, uh, along with Anthony Sutich, also ushered in the fourth wave, the transpersonal wave, in the nineteen late sixties, early seventies, part of the human potential movement. And you just you just beautifully characterize it, right? That there is. Um, knowledge and healing to be had from within us, the transpersonal, the transego, mm -hmm. those states of consciousness that psychedelics can in the right set and setting access. Um, yes. And that was a, a, a turnabout uh, to what psychiatry, how they often viewed depression or, or suffering as just a pathology versus a component of the human experience that when understood might lead to healing. I think we're in a, you know, it's been a 50 year thing still, but we're still going through those struggles, but it's got to go towards that. And I think it might be happening over the next 50 years and, and um, that move to the more transpersonal orientation, which was Jung. I mean, Jung and Maslow yes. were all really forefront, for, you know, godfathers of the, uh, of the transpersonal vision. Um, uh, so you know, you're, you're right. And we'll see. I mean, the biological revolution really, was brilliant in many ways. Obviously, people healed because of the brilliant medicines that we've made in science. But the the the, the risk is, and this happens on psychedelics as well, of biological reductionism. Yes. That is another Prozac. Take the psilocybin, and then you're not depressed, but marginalizing, not giving enough uh, um, credit to the to the experience. And it, um, a few of us are a little antsy about how that might be perceived. Here's a new medicine, psychedelics. No, it's the experience that you're having that heals and transforms, not the pill. This is not healing in a pill. And that, that's a problem, uh, John. And, and you know, to go back to your opening uh, surf today, what's the problem? That's one of them, the split between biological reductionism or materialism and these incredible states of consciousness where that seemed to be, I don't know much, part of our essence. And it seems to heal when we lean into it and um and in these experiences with the medicine and these trials the chief recommendation for the person having it is lean into whatever comes up mm. accept it move into it let it go be open to it even death itself when people are on trial well, we're preparing them for the experience if they say how about if i see death and or i'm gonna die if i keep moving along this direction and the experience in this altered state we say go ahead and die you're not going to die on the couch that day physically, but have that experience, which is rooted in religion. Um, so, no, that's great. And, I, you know, 
it's a shame, right? That transpersonal vision was really big in the early 70s and never never quite took off. It did in many ways, of course, in, in many, many schools in the culture. Um, but it, there were some brilliant writers there. And I think it's still, we still need to integrate that transpersonal school of psychology uh, with the prior schools. Mark, anything? No, I'm just, uh, as, I'm, as I'm listening to you both, and this is a little bit above my my master's degree in psychology, so you guys mm -hmm. are beyond me, but I'm always, I always go back to what's the connection? Where do we connect? You know, you can have an experience of healing, whether it's from the biologics, right? You take a pill and you do get better, mm -hmm. right? Or mm -hmm. whether it's through years of therapy or whether it's a psychedelic experience, but then where do you come out and then connect to the world around you. How does, how does that change the way you function vis-a-vis -vis everyone else? And I think this is one of the great challenges for the psychedelic. Um, and I've been in dialogue with a number of people who are talking about, well, how can religion serve the psychedelics? And people have talked about, well, we're gonna have a psychedelic Eucharist or something like that. Well, wait a second. It just can't be an individual thing. It's got to be in community. It has to connect you to others. In a, I mean, Christ said it best himself, right? You love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, soul, mind, and your neighbor as yourself. If the neighbor's not part of it, and this is what contemporary Christianity has become, this exclusive club of me and God, and the rest of the world can go to hell, literally sometimes. No, if you don't love, and I love the word neighbor in Greek, Neighbor simply means the person, whoever that person may be, who is in your physical environs. Yeah. To be a plesion to somebody is yeah. to simply be, okay, whoever's in front of you. It doesn't mean the neighbor that you like, who you get together at the fence with every day and you talk about the football game last night. That's not your neighbor. Your neighbor is whosoever comes into your presence, wow. whether it's mental physical spiritual hey mr rogers again won't you be my neighbor <laughs> won't you be my neighbor exactly and he, was, and he was a mystic he was a mystic oh well i mean and you know he was an ordained minister right right yeah you know he Methodist was a guy he, right he was a person of faith even if he was not mm -hmm. communicating dogma right he was definitely communicating what i would call the gospel a lot of churches don't communicate the gospel they simply use the gospel to communicate a message that is dualistic, objectifying of the other, and ultimately leads to hatred and sometimes even violence, right? The gospel is not about that. The gospel is about connecting you and connecting you without judgment. And this is where uh, I think in the psychedelic universe, it's going to be a hard road to hoe because what's the judgment that's going to be imposed upon those who do benefit and then share that benefit with others? Are they gonna be looked down upon? You know, um, the early Gnostics, right? Who probably did use have psychedelic Eucharist. I have no doubt that they probably had some because they were a very diverse bunch of people, but they were criticized because by the conventional Christians as being, oh, you think you're better than we are. Mm -hmm. But I think it's gonna <laughs> be the opposite when it comes to psychedelics and religion. It's going to be you're worse than we are. You're not willing to get on your knees for four hours a night and pray yeah, to Jesus. Spiritual you're, bypassing is what they call it. Exactly. Yeah. 
I call it leapfrogging. But I also think there is the, that wonderful image of the ladder, which is both in the Old Testament with Jacob and in the New Testament, Christ himself talks about you're going to see the ladder descending from heaven and ascending and angels on it. He talks about an experience, a visionary experience that his mm -hmm. disciples will have. We're stuck on a lot of our wrongs. And I think if the medicine can help people to get unstuck from the wrong that they've decided is the highest they can go or the lowest they want to go or, you know what I'm saying? Something needs to shake it up and, mm. and, and, and create a breakthrough experience. Evangelicals in this country have used emotion, music, testimonies, speaking in tongues, you name it, to try and create breakthrough. And where has it landed us? If you look at the contemporary world, it's landed us in a place of objectification, duality, and prejudice. Because they don't work. You know, if the only thing I'm feeding is your ego by exciting your emotional life, right? That's not going to create someone who loves whomsoever is in front of them at any particular moment. Because they're going to judge them. They're going to say, well, I, you know, I hate it when Christians say, oh, love, lo love the sinner, but hate the sin. No. You know what? That just ends up with you hating the sinner. You just don't want to admit that you hate the sinner. It's still objectification. And I think that the breakthrough experiences that the medicine can provide can, in fact, open people up to the reality that God really is love. And if God is love, then love is God. You've got to be able to make that circle. And that if you, if you are treating anybody with anything other than love, I don't see how you can call yourself a Christian, a spiritual person, or a religious person. I think it's impossible. So you've, you've violated every definition. I'm we hear it all the time in the research. We hear it all the time. I mean, it sounds funny as scientists talking this way. All the studies at Hopkins, NYU, all throughout all the, in London, all these trials, all these measures and statistics, but if you speak to the researchers and read the narratives of these patients who write beautiful, we, we ask them to write their journals. More often than not, they're talking about a direct experience, a direct experience of love, love towards self, others, and of this greater, that this is all made up of some kind of <laughs> somethingness, suchness, to paraphrase the Buddhists, called love. And that's just striking. I mean, that's... That's not your typical uh, clinical trial. <laughs> so I'm, I'm aware of time. I want to be, uh, you guys are so generous to create this space. And so I, with that in mind, you guys be the breaks. Uh, I, can we can we go to, can we go 14 more minutes? Is that okay? Yeah, let's go to the top of the hour. Okay, good. And, and wait, real quick, synchronicity. So Greg, uh, uh, Mark mentioned Gregory of Nisa before. And that little, um, Huxley Merton letter right above it. There's a line that I have here. So perfect. It's 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 Gregory of Nice today on the Sacred Speak show. <laughs> Mark, when you said about the icons in the mind, so Gregory of Nice, fourth century, says, "quote Every thought grasped by the mind becomes an obstacle to those who search." He's a Zen master, mm -hmm. and those are the icons you were speaking of, right? Absolutely, <laughs> the idols, really. I mean, icons that then become idols. Absolutely. Right. Well, and yeah. you're you're using the term breakthrough, and I, I was uh, the quote from Jung that you both know came to mind from Good Housekeeping, where he says, "Today, today I call God anything that disrupts my subjective states of view, that uh, takes me off my path." That you know, 
it, it is a is a it's a fracturing of the structure of reality that my microcosm has built in relationship to the macrocosm, the more or the the other. Um, so, but but on this note, Tony, I wanted to give you a little bit of time to give kind of a report from the field and let us know what is going on in the world of psychedelics, uh, as much as you can say. Sure. Uh, and real quick about that breakthrough. So there is a, I don't use this language a lot, but it, it dovetails what you're saying, that some people describe these experiences that it breaks up the cognitive structured way of thinking that people get stuck in that causes suffering. That is kind of a reset or a reboot is, I don't use the language, people use that a lot. Um, that the, the psychedelic experience or generated experience um, takes one out of the deep grooves they've been working with, is living with, and it reconnects to other perspectives. Um, quick from the field, um, the field's rapidly expanding in terms of the research. Um, so many trials going on with, of course, I'll be starting a new trial next year with uh, colleagues of mine at UCSF and UCLA. Very happy about it. Uh, Multi-site trial looking at one dose of psilocybin and palliative care, people who are uh, facing death. Um, and um, that's going to be um, uh, looking forward to that, uh, building upon the prior trials we've done and then building upon the trials from 50 years ago. Uh, there are trials in depression, alcoholism, PTSD, eating disorder, smoking cessation. Um, we're probably about five years away from psilocybin, if all goes well, uh, being rescheduled, meaning available prescription-wise for these, these and other clinical disorders. MDMA, which is a little different than psilocybin, but used in PTSD, will probably be on track for being rescheduled and available in two to three years. Um, it's an exciting time for the field. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's really very interesting. And the, and the conversation is, is going well. And I'm really heartened by also the kind of improved conversation about death and dying in our country. Still a long way to go. Mm -hmm. Still kind of the taboo, the Ernest Becker, you know, the, the big taboo, uh, denial of death. But as you both know from best-selling books and conversations and end-of-life doulas and death over dinner, all these things, we're, we're getting better at talking about what is the impossible conversation usually, but you know, can we talk more about that this, this beautiful dream ends um, and by talking about it, it might help us live better. So the field's moving along, a lot of unknowns, how, what it will look like in five, 10 years. How are we going to scale up thousands of therapists? A lot of problems. Um, how, how are we going to, you know, if it was rescheduled and available in five years from now, it really is important that people are trained well. And we have to have trained therapists, licensed therapists, and that's debatable. Some people say, why such a high bar? And th these are big questions for us to work out on the field, but um, we need ethical standards, trained therapists to do these very, very unique novels of therapy. And there's a lot of work. The next five years will be crucial and vital for how this field unfolds. And I hope it goes well. I hope it doesn't repeat the, you know, the culture doesn't repeat the sins of the past. Um, mm -hmm. But it's quite exciting. And you'll see more studies coming out soon on alcoholism. Our trial next year will start with end of life. You'll see studies soon on depression coming out. So again, to come back full circle, could this experience that humans seem wired for, um, the sense of transcendence, a sense of re of cultivating new perspectives, of revisiting early trauma, um, could they be used not only for, for insight into mind, but also to heal clinical suffering? And uh, very exciting. Thanks, Tony. 
Well, let's, uh, Mark, do you have anything on that at all? No, I just, uh, I'm excited about the prospects of uh, these medicines being able to reboot religion and religious experiences yeah. into their proper, uh, in their proper context and their proper environment and, and get us away from the uh, aspects of religion that are being used to dominate people, subjugate people and control people. Well, and, and this is the lob ball that I want to throw out at the very end that I'm sure we could go on for three hours on, but I want to give us time to unpack and unwind. The What I'm kind of thinking about here at the end is that there's a, a story. I one time went to a funeral of a, a friend of mine who had died, and she, she killed herself. Mm. And I was sitting in the pews writing all of the things this minister was saying, because not once did he mention suicide. And then what he did say was, never look within, always look to the book. And that kind of gets at what you're talking about, Mark, where if I am the, the, if I dole out salvation, and I have the exclusive right to do so, then you have to come to me to, to do that. That's intoxicating and inflating, and no human being should have that power. So, so I, I see this trend, and I think where I, where I put these two worlds together, you know, kind of the religion and the psychology and psychedelics, is that what he's saying is go to the religious authority for salvation. Right, don't go within. Uh, go to the pharmaco pharmacological authority for salvation. Don't go within. Um, go to whatever power structure, the political power structures, don't go within. What psychedelics, I think, is doing is reconnecting us with the inner journey, with an inner experience where we can have a confrontation, back to the Gnostics, why do, the Christ why, do, why do Christians freak out about Gnostics? Well, they're seeking a direct experience. You can go do that in the desert, and you don't have to go to the church as a sacred space. So uh, what we see in psychedelics is... Uh, to your point, Tony, to kind of expand that a little bit, the biological reductionism, is there's a move to position the molecule as salvation, but not the confrontation with this direct experience, whether it's love or whether it's Dante's image of Lucifer that dismembers you and then spits you out into your Beatrice. Th there's some need for us collectively because maybe we've become too obsessed with the external world providing all of my needs. I, I make jokes about saying it's air conditioning and windows, right? Like I can regulate my temperature and keep the bugs out. So I rely on that rather than relying on my, my own resources. And so what I'm encouraged by is us having these kinds of fused together conversations of science and religion, um, psychology and religion, uh, healing religion and therapies, various therapies. So thank you both for providing an opportunity to kind of bring together these worlds today and talk about something so meaningful to me, which is um, religion and psychology and our, our, our individual unique pursuit of that which is sacred. And you honor this, this project by being here. Thank you. And I just want you guys to riff for the next six minutes and close out however you'd like to close out.
I want to say thank you, John. You, you're just, I find to be a brilliant human being with steep wells of wisdom. And so Thanks. I'm honored to be with you and I'm honored to be with Mark, who just is his uh, sense of history, of, of religion, of Christianity, and his years of incredible service leaves him to be one of the wisest guys I know as well. Not a wise guy, a wisest guy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take um, the other. He'll take both. Um, I'll just close out with a quote from one of our patients, um, only a 30-second quote. Um, we ask people in our trials, every trial, for the person to write down about their experience as best as they can remember the evening of it. And although these are ineffable experiences, these writings are just gorgeous. Um, as the mystics throughout the ages have written, I mean, all these words we hear from throughout the ages are about something ineffable, but it kind of gets across. This is a person who had, who had cancer, and uh, we collect hundreds of pages of these notes. And um, here's just a quick 30-second thing. This is written years after her. So she survived four years. And we contact people. Many have died now since. But I said, what do you remember from your experience four years later? There's a reckoning which came with my cancer. And this reckoning was enhanced by the psilocybin experience. I have a greater appreciation and sense of gratitude for being alive. Once the thought that cancer is part of your life becomes woven into the fabric of your being, you realize that this or something similar awaits many others who are unsuspecting. This compels you to relate to others from the perspective of compassion due to the changeable and temporary nature of our sense of who we think we are. Radical change is just around the corner, regardless of how certain we think of this current state. We are children in our understanding of life until something reaches deep into your heart and announces itself. I understand the, the life process to be one of realization of our divine nature. This does not necessarily mean a supernatural creature. It is a process of remembrance. This, re, this experience reinforced the understanding that we are all very much together and the prevailing feeling in the end is love. Hmm. And we just get pages of these and they're all the same. Wow. And it's just, they're all so touching. So you can put aside all those stats we publish and all those beautiful studies, they're important. And that's what gets the headline and that's what moves the needle in research. But you just read these things and they're all like that. And you realize, boy, you said before, what is it, how did it change you being a priest? What they see in these things, sitting there watching a person in this experience, although no one's talking, being in the presence of whatever that is, is so moving uh, and such, such gratitude. So. Anyway, we'll, we'll close on that. I'll close on that, on, the, on those words. Thank you, Tony. That's just an amen for now. I'll be the amen chorus. I'm just going to say amen. <laughs> amen and Merry Christmas. I mean, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't get any better than that for me. And uh, I would just say one more thing. What you described, Brian, sitting at that funeral was heartbreaking to me. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was very, yeah. very heartbreaking to me. I know. Because... Yeah. I, I've seen it so many times, and I just wish that, that we Christians, especially in this season of Christmas tide, could realize that, you know, we always say that Christ came for the salvation of the world, right? But in Greek, the word salvation means healing first. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's not a rescue. And if we could simply commit, can you imagine asking somebody instead of, have you been saved? Have you been healed? I mean, it, if we could just shift the paradigm a little bit, but 
that's what's happening with Tony's work. And, and, and I think it happens with all good practitioners, whether they're therapists or whether they're working with psychedelics or whether they're just honest neighbors or clergy people who are doing the best that they can. And I, it's, it's, it's work that's still happening. I think we have to honor it. And uh, as long as it produces love, it's doing the work. Wow. Let me close on a math, a math question. You said the word amen. So how many times could you have said that in your life? 10,000, 100,000, 500? <laughs> I have no idea. A million? It's, it's ineffable. That brings you close, man. Wonderful. Uh, JP, you're the king. We gotta, we, this is a beautiful thing to do. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you for inviting us. This is, this is like the highlight, not of my week, not of my month, of my year. All right, man. Good. And I, and I, and I will uh, excuse me for uh, speaking for the show itself. I'd like to announce to the audience there'll be an Easter show as well. <laughs> there really should be. It's fertility. And, fertility is a pagan ritual of fertility. So <laughs> we'll do it on months, the Orthodox Easter. So we'll make it a little different. Four months we'll be back, maybe with uh, with Brian Mirescu to join us finally and uh, do this again. It's been a pleasure. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, and God bless. Same Thank to everybody. Guys. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye.